Ladies and gentlemen, you are in the middle of our four-year consideration series, and today we get to highlight Cobra Kai. Today, we have editor Zach Arnold with us, who has been on the series since season two. This is really excited. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I love talking to me some Cobra Kai and editing and anything else you want to talk about. Well, so I kind of want to dig in because you've had such longevity on the show. One of the things that strikes me most, again, Miyagi-Do, sitting right there, big Danielson fan, huge fan of the original trilogy. But the thing that I think I love so much about the ways in which any of these movies have become television series is that you then get to really dig into these characters, enjoy and appreciate more of their dynamics. What has it been like for you to, in some instances, actually make Johnny far more empathetic and the hero versus Daniel sometimes even feeling more like the villain? Tell me about that. Yeah, this has been a a really interesting journey for me just personally, because growing up as a child of the 80s, the Karate Kid was my Star Wars. Everybody was watching Star Wars. I was obsessed with The Karate Kid. Um, Daniel's life was essentially carbon copy of mine, new kid in a small town, didn't know anybody, dealt with lots of bullying for years and years, and I slowly got into martial arts, partly because of the film, and martial arts completely changed who I was as a person. So as I've even told him in person before, I've told uh, Billy Zapka, I'm like, dude, you were enemy number one in my house when I was growing up. Like, I just, I had a poster of you, and I was just going to take take you down and you were everything that just drove me crazy about my life. And he kind of laughed. He's like, yeah, it's not the first time I've heard that. Um, but I lived and breathed the karate kid. So essentially my, my origin story that will bring me to this idea of uh, being able to work on these two characters and really build them more into three dimensional human beings. Um, when I first found out about Cobra Kai, the series was just as it had been released on YouTube, uh, season one, it might've even been the first week. I'm not exactly sure. And my immediate reaction was how dare they, are you kidding me? Okay. Number one, this is going to suck. And number two, how dare they? That was my reaction. And then somehow through some circuitous algorithm that put the trailer in front of me, I watched the trailer and I'm like, huh, all right. So it doesn't look like the worst thing ever, but I'm sure it's still awful. So I'm going to hate watch the pilot. I'm going to hate watch it. How dare they? And of course, as I think is everybody else's story, you watch the pilot episode five and a half hours later, you finish season one, you don't know where the time has gone. And you said, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. The difference for me was not only did I say this is the best thing ever. I said, I must edit this show. Nobody's going to stop me. I will be on the show because this is my childhood. This is all of my strengths as an editor when it comes to style, when it comes to emotion, when it comes to action and comedy and drama. Like this is the perfect tool set on top of it being such a formative film for my childhood. So now that I'm in a place where I actually get to be a part of telling this story, it's actually kind of scary for me. When I first started on season two, now it was like, how dare I? Like, who do I think I am to decide and make choices about Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence? And it was it was a really kind of overwhelming and intimidating experience for me at first. But what I love is being a part of helping to shape who these characters are. And what I really didn't understand, obviously you wouldn't have understood it from just the, the feature film, because in hindsight, the feature film is very one-dimensional. It's like, here's the protagonist, here's the antagonist, he has a challenge, we need to beat the guy in the tournament. Now we're adding all of these three dimensional layers to the story and I didn't realize how much nuance both of these actors had in their repertoire 
watching these dailies, it was just like, my Lord, like they're both so talented. And it kind of became intimidating. Like what versions of this joke or this line, like I actually get to be a part of creating this character. I mean, they're obviously the biggest part of it, but as an editor, you have a say in the performance and the pacing and the emotional choices. And that was, that was a lot to handle at first. And it's, it's a responsibility that I don't take lightly. So it's not a matter of, Oh, I think this is the best version of the scene. You have to look at, look at it in macro and like what version of the character does the audience know? And what choice is the most authentic to this specific character or to this actor? Because everybody, at least in my generation or close to it, grew up with these two characters. So there's, it goes beyond just, I think this is the best version for the scene. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices and say, well, this might be the funniest joke, but that's not really the way that Johnny Lawrence would deliver it. So let's use the most authentic version. So kind of one of the jokes that we have about Cobra Kai is people watch the show and they're like, oh, this looks like fun to work on. And it just seems like this fun little 30 minute comedy. It is the most deceptively difficult show I have ever edited where it is insanely complex and time consuming and so many things happening behind the scenes to make it feel simple. And one of them is really managing the nuances of all these performances. That kind of touched on one of the questions I wanted to ask too, because you don't necessarily always have the same director per episode or even cinematographer. And so you have a lot of different moving pieces and I'm wondering about how much time you actually do get for an episode, not just in the cutting room, but, you know, episode 410, for example, was like 42 minutes. So you did have a little bit longer. Do you get to play with that some, or is that just for finale? Like, how's that work? The short answer is that it depends. The long answer is that it takes as long as it takes. And that's not necessarily an answer that a studio executive with a spreadsheet in front of them wants to hear. But our showrunners are very, very protective of the quality of the show, which is why I think it's so good. I actually did my own podcast interview with them way back when I first got the job to talk about their process. Because when it comes to this ideal, the idea of the triangle of quality, you get fast, cheap, good. You get to pick two. Good isn't even in the conversation for them. It has to be not only good, it has to be fantastic. So if that means that it's going to take longer to do something, it just takes longer to do something. And the lessons that we've learned throughout four seasons of Cobra Kai is however long we think it's going to take, it's probably going to take double the amount of time. So for the amount of time to do 10 episodes for season two versus season four and now season five, I don't know exactly what the difference is, but we spend a lot more time per episode in editorial. And the thing that makes it really, really both rewarding, but also very challenging logistically is having come from the network world. You just have a calendar. This is when you get your dailies, you keep up to camera, you've got a three-day editor's cut, you have your director's cut, you have your producer's cut, picture locks, process starts over, you get new dailies for a new episode, et cetera, et cetera. Cobra Kai isn't really episodic in the editorial process. We're just cutting it like it's a five-hour feature film, and we're just delegating sections of that feature film. So at any given time on at least the last three seasons, because seasons three, four, and five, I was in the lead rotation, meaning that I did one, four, seven, and ten, which includes premiere and finale, which are obviously usually the biggest episodes. Sometimes episode five is pretty big as well. Um, but the point being that I don't finish one, and then move on to four, and then move on to seven, and then move on to 10 at certain points in the season, I'm doing all four simultaneously in a single 10 hour day. 
oh, we've got this cleanup stuff in this montage in episode one, and we got network notes on episode four, and you're working on director's notes on episode seven, and I'm catching up with 157 million hours of dailies to get through the season finale for episode 10. So it's really, really challenging to manage all of that. But the short answer is this show takes as long as it takes. And when we need more time to get it right, the producers talk to the powers of B and say, this is what we need to get it right, which I very, very much appreciate because we're not trying to cram all this work into less hours because as you know, and we may or may not talk about it, I'm a huge advocate for work-life balance and more hours don't equal better hours. And that's another reason that it's such a great show to work on and great people to work with is because we just extend the schedule when we need the time. We don't just work more hours and sleep less. Well, it actually has been, uh, there's plenty of back and forth that anybody can get on either soapbox, you know, so far as streamers impact on television and film, but especially television versus traditional, maybe, you know, studio schedules, but it has been quite a breath of fresh air to hear that, especially for those that drop is a whole season, because you can concentrate on it much like it is a film. You have other editors that you're working with and it sounds very collaborative as in, you know, this actually works better on this episode or let me, you know, see what you're doing over there. And it kind of has given back a little bit of even what COVID took away so that you have the opportunity to kind of collaborate more on the grand scheme of things. Um, but something that stuck out for me, especially is because you also have uh, uh, 404 and 407 where we really get to meet Kenny. And so I wanted to hear about how exciting that was to develop an entirely new character here in season four and the arc that you give him all the way through to 410 then totally new like in introducing it into the the karate kid lexicon how was that because you know that's not the same responsibility to daniel and johnny but a whole new character into the lexicon yeah, I mean, having come from uh, both the feature world and the TV pilot world, um, it, it wasn't a new thing to me to all of a sudden have to figure out how to develop a brand new character. Um, but I will never forget the first time that I saw footage of Dallas. That's uh, Kenny's first name is Dallas. Um, I saw footage of him and I remember sending, it was either Josh or John, one of the showrunner creators. I'm like, who is this guy? I was just like, he's so good. And he's like, oh my God, we know. Like, just wait. Um, and without giving away any spoilers, you love him season four, wait until season five. Um, but the point being that he was he's such an exciting new direction to go with the show that was just, you know, here's another stock character and here's somebody that's getting bullied. And I remember and I'm actually very, very jealous about the fact that I get, didn't get to episode episode 402 or at least all of it. I got a, a hand in parts of episode 402. But I remember reading the script for 402 and thinking, and this is before I had even seen who Dallas was, just the character on paper, thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. We're introducing this new like kind of, you know, kid that feels like is going to be the the Miyagi-Do kind of breed and he's kind of weak and he's going to overcome the bullies and like he's going to Cobra Kai like that was such a cool twist and I was so excited so one of the things that I do working on the show and everybody that works with me on the show knows this about me I say if you're going to talk about scripts or things in upcoming episodes la 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 I don't want to know because the only experience I get as a fan is reading a script 
Once the script is read, it's all ruined for me. So they'll actually have meetings where I need to be involved. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, guys, I haven't read the script yet. I'm waiting, right? So when it when it debilitates my ability to do the job, obviously, I read it. But I hold off on reading new scripts as long as I can. And I remember reading 402 and thinking, man, like, how cool is this new character going to be? And uh, definitely call that one right, because he's pretty awesome. And I think probably... There are a lot of favorite scenes that I've worked on and favorite scenes that I've cut. And this one probably goes under the radar a little bit because it's not one of those big, flashy, kind of climactic moments. But when Kenny beats up Anthony in the locker room, oh, my God, did I love putting that scene together. Like just because that was the moment when you feel like, oh, man, he's really gone to the dark side. And to play that tonally and figure out what performances to use and, and watch that turn. I loved cutting that scene. We do a lot of previs for like sports sequences choreography, fight viz, things like that. And oftentimes it becomes an extension of the writer's room so that they can figure out how to best convey not just the fight in the action of it, but the actual emotion that is coming out of someone that they want to not just have to rely on the actor and the director to convey that, but is there an angle? Is there a, you know, any of that? So I really, really, really appreciated that, especially even your cuts when you held and the choices that gave him the extra time to shine, not just as an actor, but as the actual character and what was going on in there. Yeah. There's actually like one very, very specific moment that I remember crafting. Um, And it was probably maybe the antithesis of maybe what the director or the producers had intended at that time. But they were playing Kenny very, very subdued when he was saying to Anthony, like, oh yeah, tell me how it feels. How, How does it feel to be bullied? Right. And he slowly builds. And instead of it being a slow build, there was this one line where you just see him like completely break and he like does this thing with his muscles and like the veins are coming out of his arms. The intention wasn't to be in a wider shot in that moment. But I said, this little tiny kid is all of a sudden just ripped and you can feel the anger coming off of him. You got to see his arms all pumped up in that wide shot to just feel the transformation. So that was kind of one of those little nuanced choices that kind of goes against what would be a conventional way to put it together, but helps you shape who the character is and shape their trajectory. It's just one of those random cuts that I remember really defending when I was like, well, we should be in a close up. No, I want to keep this in a wide shot because that really shows him becoming this like little ball of muscle that he wasn't before. Well, and also similarly, something that really struck me that maybe not be as Cobra Kai as some might like, but I was really impacted by the Johnny and Carmen love story because, you know, you have him having just come off of the whole alley situation and the nostalgia factor there that all the fans would love. I loved, but, you know, you're cheating on Carmen. And so, and then also explaining to her son just how did you build for that? Because those are more tender moments and take a little bit of time to, you know, get across. So it's not campy and it was not campy. It was very sweet. And I saw kind of his own redemption there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that we very, very carefully craft. Uh, a, a scene that I think of off the top of my head would be that dinner scene right away in 401, um, where like, he's got the salsa. Mama. Here, try this spicy mango. It's like the old country. 
Gracias. That was one that as soon as I saw it, I was like laughing my butt off while I was cutting it. Um, it looks like a fairly simple scene. You've got four people sitting in a table, very conventional coverage. There's nothing, you know, you don't have dollies and cranes and all this uh, fancy stuff. We probably worked on that scene more than most fight sequences. The amount of notes and iterations and trials and cuts and because that was such an important scene to convey how does he react to her and how do we really feel like like there were versions where he was just kind of flip it and he was making fun of it like oh yeah you know she was a flame but then there are other versions where he really went deep and we had to make a lot of decisions about how is he reacting to this because going back to your very first question we don't want to dislike johnny we want to make sure that we like johnny and he's always a likable person how you play a scene like that very simple scene at the dinner table and how he reacts to being caught so to speak with being with somebody else is going to help us judge him as a person so I would say that of all the simple scenes I've done, that was probably the most complex and the most workshopped because we care so much about how people are going to react to him as a character. It's felt and it's seen, and I applaud you, sir. Well done. Thank you. Um, let's get into it. Let's talk fights. <laughs> yeah, I knew this was coming eventually. How can you not, right? I mean, you know, as uh, I mean, editors are my absolute favorite. You guys are responsible for so much because I absolutely want to hear about VFX and sound as well. Because I think I well, actually, I don't think most people know how much sound work you are probably getting in there before it hits air. Um, but so good place to start with those fight scenes. The difference between being at Miyagi-Do versus um, uh, what was Eagle Fang versus actual Cobra Kai versus the tournament. So just from my perspective, if you were at home, feels like there's, and then the one-off battles between people, like there are just so many different styles of fighting. Do you have kind of, I, I, I don't want to use a, a word like template, but are there kind of, you know, uniform ways in which to make them feel different? Yes. So I, I agree. I hate the word template in many different contexts because it just feels like Mad Libs, like I just need to fill in the blanks um, and everything there has to be nuance. But I think that the most important word that you're looking for is tone. When it comes to the actual fights, if we're talking about throwing punches and kicks, I don't approach two students fighting differently if they're in the Miyagi-Do backyard versus if then they're, you know, the Eagle Fang cement factory or no, I don't even know what it is. And I work on the show, but whatever that thing is that Miyagi Fang became, or if it's in the Cobra Kai dojo, I'm not saying, well, the, the cuts need to be different here or there, or different angles because of the dojo. What I care about is tone and the tone that I always think about what it's, as far as a, an editor, my job is to create emotions is to create feelings, right? So I, I want to take the, the viewer on an emotional journey. And it's my job to know at any given moment, what are you feeling? And where are your eyes? Where are you looking? So if I know where your attention is, and I know what you're feeling, and I'm predicting that correctly, I'm doing my job. And if I'm in the three different dojos, what I want you to feel is different. So the way that I think about Miyagi-Do is it's kind of like this serene yoga studio where you're learning and you're growing and you're becoming yourself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? If you're at Cobra Kai, you're in the military. And you're going to notice if you were to just play these scenes with no dialogue and with music only, the music plays a large part in creating this tone where it's very militaristic. It's snare drums. It's like this is every you're all going to conform and you're all going to do the same thing, whether you believe it or not. We are a military unit. And then Miyagi Fang is just kind of the ragtag group of random misfits 
that are like out in the backyard slinging cement blocks and running from dogs. Like they're, they're the junkyard dog, so to speak, to kind of refer back to a scene in season one. So the way that the music is composed, the tone that we create, the energy, the pacing of it is all based on maintaining those three tones, but it doesn't necessarily change the choices I would make in a fight as long as those choices adhere to those three tones. Well, that kind of then leads me into 410 with, you know, it's just a completely different environment and it's meant to feel very uh, tournament and competition. And uh, there, I'm guessing, are some more VFX in there than a regular episode may have been. And so when you are cutting for the hype of the of the 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 audience that is there and their teams cheering for them while focusing in on each individual pairing um uh, i wouldn't really know where to begin with that amount of coverage <laughs> that's kind of how i felt too uh, <laughs> i looked at i looked at my bins and uh, one of the the things that i have my assistant do every single day it's like uh responsibility number one as soon as you get the paperwork i want a slack message in slack that tells me how much material did we get for the day and as we started to get things for 410 i'm like please tell me that's a typo please tell me you added one too many zeros like no that's how much we got um so it was it's the most footage that i've ever gotten for any episode of television and I've done episodes that have run 50 60 plus minutes and this is supposed to be a 30 minute comedy um, and 410 was intense so I don't remember the exact number of footage it was an exorbitantly high amount for a, a single episode uh, but what I do remember and I've actually talked about before is that with just one scene and when I say scene I big I mean a big set piece but if we look at the fight between Tori and Sam that one scene I think it was about nine pages give or take and it went to setup BD. So anybody that doesn't understand camera setups, it starts with single letter setup A, B, C, D. Oh man, we've already hit all the whole alphabet. Now we have to start over with A, B, A, C, A, D. So you do the math. We were up to BD, which is 57 setups with three cameras in each setup for one fight. And I looked at that and I looked at the calendar and I reached out to the producer and I'm like, I'm going to need more time. I don't think I can make this happen. So I just looked at it and I said, this is realistically just going to take me forever. So essentially, let me get into it and I'll just check in with you once a week to let you know where I am. And yeah. keep in mind, that was only one of two fights in that episode. And the fights in the episode are less than half the episode. I generally do not like this question, but it is a huge part, I think, of why you have had such an impact on our editorial community in post in the post industry of entertainment period. But I think it, it has deep value to ask you what your process is. And I'm totally aware and thank you for humoring me here because I know people can go listen to your podcast and sign up for this kind of um, ability to dissect and better understand how to manage challenging post schedules like this. But may I ask a question I don't even like myself, what is your process? More than happy to answer this. No uh, caveats or apologies necessary. Obviously, I like talking about this because I talk about it ad nauseum all the time in all kinds of contexts. Um, so there's two different ways to look at this. And I'm going to go from two different angles. There's the process simply just creatively to watch dailies and get it to a scene, to get it to an episode of something you see on television. And then there's the larger process of how do I do it and survive? 
right? So those, those are kind of two separate conversations. So I'm going to start just with the, the creative side is just an editor. And then we can talk bigger picture about managing it with work-life balance and training for American Ninja Warrior and raising kids and running a coaching program. Like that's a whole other process, so to speak. So let me just start with what does it look like from day one of dailies until basically, let's say, delivering first cut of an episode? Because after that, it's pretty standard. People send me notes. I do their notes, rinse, lather, repeat. We lock picture, do it for the next episode. But I think that my process for editor's cut is not a lot unique, but it's a little unique. So what I do first is I have my assistant take all of the dailies for any given scene. And it doesn't matter if it's a 30 second scene where you're walking from one door to the next. And it doesn't matter if it's a nine page fight scene where you've got 57 camera setups, and three cameras running, same process. She will string all of the dailies together and I watch them exactly as they were shot on set. So it's this concept that's called a chem roll. So if you go back to the chem flatbeds of the film cutting days, this is an idea that I got from Walter Murch in one of his early books. That on a chem roll, you essentially just string together all of the dailies on a big giant roll and you watch them. Most editors nowadays will say two things in response to this. Number one, there isn't enough time to watch everything. And number two, I have script sync. So why would I sit down and watch all the garbage in between the takes and this or that? And th there's no time and I don't need it anymore. My argument is that the best way to understand the director's or the producer's intentions is you have to be on set with them, which means I have to watch it as they shot it. And if they did nine takes of a master shot, most people would say, I'll watch eight and nine because clearly they were having trouble. I want to watch it from takes one through nine so I can find out what they didn't like. And I'm listening between the series, before action, after cut, what are you reacting to? What's changing and what's evolving? Because usually you see the evolution of the scene and once the master shot is done, they just repeat that and make sure they get all the coverage of it. So I watch every single setup chronologically, top to bottom. If they hit record, I'm watching it. The other reason that I think that's so important is that especially when you start to work on things that are a much larger budget and higher profile, who in the world am I, the lonely little editor in a small dark room to say, all of that money that you spent, all the people that you put in this room, all the time that you took to shoot this, who am I to say that's not important for me to watch it? I just think it's irresponsible. So I watch everything that is shot with the exception of if they shot a bunch of stuff off speed and like slow motion or whatnot, I'll probably speed it up so I don't have to watch it really slow. Not enough hours in the day. But in general, if it's been shot, I've watched it. And again, the argument is, well, there's not enough time to do that. And my counter argument is there isn't enough time not to do that. The reason being for a lot of editors that I know, especially in television with today's schedules, their processes, I watch the final takes, I assemble everything together, and if somebody says they don't like a performance, I look for another one. But that doesn't do the actual scene justice, and it doesn't do the performers justice. So by the time I'm getting somebody an editor's cut, my showrunners are confident this is what Zach believes to be the best version of every single moment in a scene, in a sequence, in an episode. It doesn't mean I always got it right, but what we never have to spend time doing on the show is them saying, now show me all the performances of this line. Now show me all the performances of this line. Because what happens over and over and over is they say, we're not sure about this one specific line. Can we see all the versions? And inevitably, 89 to 95 times out of 100, never mind, you pick the right one. But the only reason I build that trust is because my process is I watch everything. And as I'm watching it, I'm also cutting the scene in my head. So rather than saying, well, where do I start? 
I already know what the rhythm of the scene is before I cut it. So I can actually assemble very, very quickly. So I actually feel watching everything is a time saver if you're looking big picture. But yeah, if you're in dailies, like it costs me more time. But um, from the moment I get dailies to the moment I lock picture, I save an immense amount of time by watching everything. So that's the most important part of my process. From there, once I've watched everything, I assemble the scenes like anybody else would. But what I don't do is I don't add any music. I'm a little bit more of a classicist because I come from the feature world where I have the entire episode strung together with no music whatsoever. I refuse to put in anything, unless it's a montage that requires music and it's unwatchable without it, but other than very specific key moments, the whole episode is dry. I watch the whole thing. I trim it down, restructure, rewrite as needed to make it all flow. Once I know that the episode works really well without any music, now it's time to add music and score. So then I'll go through, I'll add, and essentially on this show, it's a process that's essentially called wallpapering because there is very, very few uh, minutes of screen time without music on Cobra Kai. Other shows, they're very dry. This is one that's very, very heavy on music and score. So it's a big part of the editorial process and a big part of the editor's cut process. While I'm doing all of the above, my assistant is going through and doing all of the first pass of sound work, which as you alluded to earlier, not an easy job. So what I don't want to do is take away from the sound team and what they contribute. Because I feel that what sometimes happens in these conversations is, and I've heard this before and it really frustrates me, where an editor or an assistant editor will say, well, basically we're doing all the sound work, right? Like they're just going through and cleaning it up and mixing it. And I don't want it to come off that way at all. But to somebody that has a completely untrained ear, they would watch an editor's cut and they wouldn't question it and say, oh, this is really rough and it's missing all these gaps. It's just a bad version of what they're going to see on TV. And then when we pass it off after lock picture, they strip everything out there, rebuild all of it from scratch. And you're like, oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's about 100 times better than it was. We actually on this show make a point of inviting the re-recording mixers on because it is such a joy to hear editors and re-recording mixers talk about that because it, it is very subliminal. You don't notice something unless it's not there a mm -hmm. lot of time. And there are shows that like editors, absolutely. You're trying to give feeling and emotion to what the cut is also trying to convey. But by the time it hits that mix stage, then there, there's a whole nother world of opportunity and what they're able to craft and do, but they at least have a scope of understanding of what the intention was. So we yeah. are big fans of re-recording mixers here. Yeah, as you should be. And the way that I always describe it to somebody that doesn't really understand the process is that we give them the best back of the napkin version sketch we possibly can. Right. If, if we were going to design a house together, hey, pass me that cocktail napkin, like the best sketch I can give you. But then they actually put together blueprints and build a house. And you're like, eh, I kind of see the resemblance. But what you did is a million times better. <laughs> right. But I've been on other shows where you kind of don't need to put in anything and they're fine with it because they're like, oh, we're going to you know, have the, the team do that. But the problem that I see and I've run into this over and over and over again. When you present something that feels unfinished, either to a director, a producer, a writer, a showrunner, they give you a whole bunch of notes that they don't realize are only notes because what they're seeing is rough. So if we can give them the experience that they're watching something as finished as possible, they don't focus on all of those issues. They focus on story. So that's actually one of the edicts on our show is that the showrunners, I mean, they give us, they basically give us notes as if we are 
composers, as if we are sound designers, as if we are visual effects artists. They're giving us notes to that level of complexity because they want to know how close to finished can we get this before we even hand it to the professionals, so to speak, and then they take it to a completely different level. But all of those departments appreciate that because it's much clearer what our intention is. Well, with visual effects, especially, tell me about the notes that you would get there or notes that you might send back, because I have to imagine there are some set extensions that potentially driving plates, potentially, you know, well, not potentially, I'm sure those screens, even in 410, were all vis effects <laughs> and choreography stunts, like how much, well, number one, do you do any previs for that? And then number two, how much of stunt doubles are used and how much support are the actual actors then getting in those fight scenes? And if there's any way for you to come back and land on episode 310, was that one take or was that you? Uh, which the you're talking about the one in 310? Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember. I've done so many oneers and so many fight scenes. I can't literally picture what is the one in 310. Well, so basically, oh, it, was the, it was the fight in the house. It's the the Christmas yeah, fight. The fight the all- uh, it just shows you how deep in my head I am into to season five, and I'm like season three. I did that 27 years ago. <laughs> um, but as far as visual effects, uh, fights, and all that, what I will say is that. I don't know this exactly, and my uh, producer Mallory could probably say this with more certainty, but 98% of the visual effects are visual things you probably wouldn't know are visual effects. Phone screens, either painting out buildings, or like you said, minor set extensions, driving plates. But almost everything is invisible, and it's just kind of fixing a problem. Crew in the shot, whatever it is. It's, there's way more visual effects in the show than you would ever guess. But the areas where you think there are visual effects, there probably aren't. And the biggest one is, well, how real are the fight sequences? And in four seasons, I can think off the top of my head of three shots where wires needed to be removed. Almost everything, and when I say almost, I mean the vast, 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 vast majority of what you're seeing is real. There are no set extensions. They're not doing it on a green screen. Like they're on set, they are fighting, and they are doing what you're seeing. Obviously, through editorial, we're making it snappier and punchier, no pun intended, but a little bit of a pun intended. Um, but in, what you are seeing is what they shot. So areas you're like, oh, this must have been a ton of visual effects work. Nah, it really wasn't. It's all the things you wouldn't know were a lot of visual effects work. Like, for example, um, if we're going back to 310, that snake pit, oh, that was a lot of work. Like, that was my producer's nightmare for like a month was building out that snake pit. Because um, just practically having a hole that deep and filling it with live snakes, just not possible. So that was a visual effects challenge. But a lot of the fight sequences are more complicated things you would assume are visual effects. They're actually not. Which brings me back to, would you like the answer to the question about the one or in 310? Yes, I okay. would. So the answer about this is that it is as close to a one as you can get, but technically it is three different takes stitched together. So There's I wanted it. Everybody wants it to be a one um, but it's just, it's nearly impossible for a shot that complex and that long with that many moving parts, which by the way, all of it's practical. There's not there other than stitching the shots together. There are no visual effects in that at all. There's no wire removal or crew in the shots. Like there was never a cameraman in the frame. So the only thing that was a visual effect was fixing one of the seams. One of the seams was seamless and I could do it myself, which says a lot because my visual effects capabilities are creating the banner in the lower third that says visual effects here. 
I don't do any visual effects at all. Not my thing. I'm going to outsource that to the professionals. There's one stitch that I made it to where most people don't didn't know it was a stitch, but watching the offline cut, you're like, eh, something's weird there. But other than that, seamless and a oneer. but I had to stitch different takes together just because you can have like a two-minute oneer and one kid misses one punch, can't use it. So technically it's three stitched together, but it's as close to a oneer as you get. I have to know, uh, just personally and professionally, how in the world you went about using footage from the original movies. Um, I think a lot of that actually has to do with clipped apartments and legal clearances and everything else. Um, but essentially, the show would not be what it is without calling back the original story. And this is actually one of my favorite things about it, is that there are so many places where whether it's an entire scene or it's just one random subtle shot that's coming from somebody's head, where we get to repurpose and either reuse or discover new things that weren't in the original series. So uh, one of the things that comes uh, to the top of mind, right off the top of my head, that comes from 410, if that's kind of where we're focusing. There were a couple of moments that I was super, super proud of that, again, 99% of people would never know the difference. There's occasionally that crazy super fan that you see on Facebook or somewhere else that notices. Uh, but there was a shot when Crease and Johnny were talking in the hallway and where Kreese was talking about how, like, this is our chance and, you know, Miyagi beat us and all this. It's like, I knew you were down and out. There's this one random cutaway to Crease just standing there watching Johnny as he goes back into the fight. That was something I found digging through old raw 35 millimeter dailies. And I'm like, that wasn't in the film, but it perfectly tells the story that Crease is telling now. I'm like, that's got to be in there. And one of, the, uh, uh, one of the traditions that we have on the show is that every season for the editor's cut, we screen the editor's cut as a group which can be terrifying because it's an editor's cut, but the expectations are so high that you make sure it's screenable. Um, and I remember watching that scene, and as soon as that shot of Crease came up, Hayden Schlossberg, one of the showrunners, he's like, that was awesome. I'm like, yes! Like, he, he understood and knew the power of that moment being new and different to the audience. And then the other one, which I don't know if any... There was a couple of people that maybe have noticed this, but when you have that moment where you have Crease on one side of the mat during the fight... It was the whole thing about Tori and whether she's going to, you know, break the rules or not. And then he looks over at Johnny and we flash back to the moment when he's choking him. There are two moments in there that, again, didn't happen in the original Karate Kid 2. And one of them is a moment where he keeps saying, I can't remember what the line of dialogue is specifically, but it's where Kreese keeps saying to him while he's choking him in his head, like just he continues to go to him and push him on. That wasn't in the original film. But again... It wasn't in there for the sake of, oh, cool, bonus content or Easter egg. It was this more deeply tells a story that we've already heard more than once. So a big part of what we do as editors is how do we either recall things the audience knows or dig deeper into the nuance to dailies where even if it's a different angle or it's an extra two seconds that wasn't used, it feels like we're building more story around the same idea. Um, I'm going to need to ask you to give me a second while I process the fact that I think you said you were handling 35 millimeter dailies of the original films. Well, I wasn't actually holding them. Uh, I mean, they're, they're digitized and avid, but like I've, I've actually had the opportunity to watch the raw takes of some of these scenes where you see the different angles and you hear that like the director, John G. Vildson calling out directions. And it's just like, what world am I living in right now? 
So the first time I ever got to do that was kind of one of those moments of like, how did I end up here and how is this my life? I was cycling through all of the raw footage of Daniel doing the crane kick to Johnny at the end of Karate Kid 1. I'm like, how did I end up here? And I don't even remember offhand what it was, what episode or what I was looking for, but I just remember the experience of watching every angle and raw cut. And I'm like, how is this my life right now? Wow. That is, yeah, I would sim echo, just echo. That is really, really cool. Coming back to, you know, the second part of your uh, response to the process that you go through, I want to make sure that our audience knows that you are actually very much a resource to them, a resource to our community. Um, and you have so many different ways in which you're connecting and sharing and educating. Can you kind of tell me about that? Yeah. So I think this is going to be a, a good way to kind of close the loop on part two of what is my process. And that's having done this for now over 20 years in Los Angeles and another five or 10 years before that, I've literally been paid to do some form of editing since I was about 13 years old. So it's essentially all I've done for many, many, many years. Um, but discovered once I started to get to the A-list level that the way that we do things in this industry is not sustainable. And I realized I need to find a different way to manage my time during the days, the weeks, and the months, because if I'm going to set myself up for success and I'm going to play the long game as opposed to I just need to power through and I need to make it until the next hiatus. And when hiatus comes, then I get healthy. It didn't work so well for me and it doesn't work so well for a lot of other people. So for me, my process is, aside from watching dailies and the order that we talked about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I make it very, very clear that I have distinct boundaries when you work with me. So when I did my initial interview with the three showrunners and I was talking about how much I love the show and Karate Kid is my Star Wars, like super adamant about it, I made sure that it wasn't just about them asking me, well, what do you love about the show? What can you bring to it? Why do you think you'd be a good fit? Stock question, stock question, stock question. I made it my responsibility to ask them what their process was. So what are your, what is your process? What is your expectations as far as time? Um, is this the kind of thing where you're a showrunner, where you're going to be on set all day? And then at 9 p.m., that's where editorial begins, even if I've been in the office since 10 a.m. anyways. People are going to think it's hyperbole. It's not. That's a very, very common story that I've heard from a lot of top editors. They come into the office at 10 a.m. They do nothing for 11 hours. Then their day starts and they're cutting until 4 a.m. To me, that is not acceptable. Not only is it not acceptable, it sets me up for failure. I'm going to be doing really crappy work. And why in the world would I take the number one tool that I have as a creative and a problem solver, which is my brain, and essentially make it useless by not sleeping, by working long hours, by sitting all day long in a small dark room, eating crap and being fed pizza that slid under a door. None of those set me up for success. So an important part of my process is very clearly setting expectations and boundaries, which goes back to the conversation we had about time, which is how long does it take to do the show? And it takes as long as it takes. In four seasons of Cobra Kai, I have not been paid $1 in overtime. The reason is, instead of overtime, we extend the schedule, which I knew going into the show. One of the red flags that I've learned with other shows is you say, or you ask, is there overtime? Oh, yeah, there's plenty of overtime. Don't worry about it. You're going to get compensated. Red flags, red flags, giant warning. Because I know that means that however crazy the schedule is, we have to deliver on the same day at my expense. Yeah, it's at their expense on a Google spreadsheet, but it's my life, right? And I'm trading my life for dollars. 
and I refused to do that. So I spent years and years and years learning how do I optimize every aspect of my lifestyle such that I become a better creative and a better problem solver and a better husband and a better editor to my assistant. Um, and to me, that is just a, a core foundation of how you become successful in this industry because I think we've just been conditioned to believe culturally that you can't be healthy and well-balanced and successful in Hollywood. It's one or the other. And I feel that you can be healthy and successful because you prioritize work-life balance, not despite the fact that you are ignoring it. So essentially, when it comes to my Optimize Yourself program, I work with creative professionals in all facets of entertainment and even people in completely different industries, helping them better understand what are the lifestyle habits, the career habits, how do I become more productive, how do I more uh, effectively, not just efficiently, but more effectively use my time. And then most importantly, if I'm going to pursue a fulfilling career path, what does that actually look like? Not just how do I win the awards. But how is this actually a job that I love, that gets me out of bed in the morning, that energizes me instead of draining me? Because uh, I just feel that, that is, th these are skills that are so sorely lacking in an attitude that it has been so frowned upon in our industry where you pay your dues and you just put your no nose to the grindstone and you step across dead bodies so you can get to the finish line and you can be successful. And I am doing everything I possibly can to change that culture. And it all starts individually setting boundaries and expectations. Um. I hope that you take this as, as I mean it, because um, it's probably weird. I just met you, never gotten a chance to work with you, but um, golly gee whiz, am I proud of you. Well, I thank mean, you. That means a lot. We just have so many people here at DFT that come from those backgrounds and cultures, and it takes so much work to get them past that and to earn the trust that we don't do that here. And I always say the hardest part about working at DFT is letting go of that or thinking that the other shoe is going to drop. Like we take care of our people here, not with, you know, like here's your pizza under the door, but I will literally turn off your access and shove you out the door. Like you have to take your PTO. There is no one in this company that is so important that you can't go home and take a break or take a vacation. There's no reason that you shouldn't have an ergonomic chair. There's no reason that you shouldn't get up and move around. Like we offer personal training sessions and, you know, all these different things to remind you that you are not just some button pusher. And it really, it's, that's why I get choked up because we have people, especially in VFX that come from these horrific 18 hour days. And they just, they're like, are you serious? How are you serious? How are you serious? And I'm like, because I would like for you to maybe spend 10, 20 years here. And you're never going to want to do that if you're spending 10 to 20 hours a day here. Mm -hmm. Alex. Yeah, yeah, that, that actually brings up a very Cobra Kai specific story uh, that might be a good, uh, good button for all of this, uh, is that at the beginning of season three, uh, this was before the pandemic when we were still in offices. Both season four and five were like 98% work from home with a couple of in-person sessions. But season three was still all in the office. Uh, and it was my first day on the job. And just because of schedules and whatnot, uh, another one of the editors in the rotation had started a couple of days before me. I walked past his door. He had his door open. And he was sitting at the like little coffee table in front of his couch 
with a little styrofoam container eating his lunch. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm, uh, you know, grabbing lunch real quick. No, you're not. We do not do that here. You are not going to be having your lunch at the table or at your desk. Get outside, and we're going to get some sunlight, and we're going to step away and take a break. And the look on his eyes was like I was asking him to break out of prison because that's how he was conditioned. And then as we started to do those lunches, he realized, why have we not always been doing it this way? So every single day, even though we might not all be doing it together, it just becomes a habit. It's all about establishing habits and setting those boundaries. And one of the things that I'm the most proud of about Cobra Kai that has everything to do with the team that we have, and this is a totally random thing, but I think it's a, it's a really good microcosm of what we're talking about. I remember seeing a message in Slack posted by one of our team members, just in the general channel that said, just a reminder, everybody going to be at my therapy appointment from four to 5 PM today. It wasn't, is it okay? Are we too busy? Should I cancel it? It was just, just a reminder. I'm doing this and I'm not available. And not only was it setting a boundary, it was being open enough to be comfortable with our entire team to say, I will be gone talking to a therapist. That doesn't happen too often in our community. And to, to be able to build a team like that, and I'm not saying I built the team, I'm a part of helping to create that culture. And our producer, Mallory, is also a huge help in perpetuating that culture as well. But I just remember seeing that one post. I'm like, I am proud to be a member of this team where that is not only accepted, but encouraged. And it's 701, if that's when an assistant editor goes into overtime, technically, you'll get a message from Mallory. Why are you messaging me? It is 702. Talk to me about this tomorrow morning. Have a good night. It's just not the way that a lot of the industry runs. But if we are going to be successful over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it is the only way this industry and the people in it are going to survive. And as we continue to grow and hire, it hurts my heart that people are shocked to find out that we pay for health care entirely, that we have add on mental health services so that if you don't like what's in your network, great, we have an add on service that you can use for that financial health and making sure that we have coaches in that regard, that people have an understanding of how to retire. Um, I just, I'm just very, very grateful for you. Zach, I cannot thank you enough for joining us here today. These were some real gems, uh, not just nostalgia, but also a true ability to just embrace what you have brought forward from the OG into introducing so many people to this series. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. I can't thank you enough for allowing me to, to share my story and talk about this craft and this show that I clearly love. We are so excited to get you immediately back for season five. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Lots to talk about that I can't talk about now. So, All right. Take care, Zach. Yeah, take care. Thank you.